But, you know, and it, because it's a seminary, obviously it's a house of formation, and so mm-hmm. we, there has to be a certain structure to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, we, you know, we try to have guests come in periodically, you know, for different guest nights, guests of the seminarians, and, um, you know, and different groups will come in. Sarans who pray for and, and support our seminarians will come in. So it's always a joy to welcome guests when we, when we can, and I think it's always very encouraging as well. Mm. Thank you so much for that. And as you said, the church is in need of so much hope. So, uh, you know, you, you authored the book, Why Celibacy? Reclaiming the Fatherhood of the Priest. And, and then you, you pivoted into writing this book, Cross-Examined. And, 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 and you wanted to, in, in fatherly wisdom, I would take it, you wanted to provide your, your, your flock the tools necessary to defend the faith. So uh, just explain to us, what, what was the thought process behind the writing of this book? Yeah, well, you know, when we started the seminary, uh, we had a number of goals in mind for the young men who had graduated. One of them was that they would be articulate in some of the difficult issues facing Catholics, facing everybody today, uh, but in particular those that are more perhaps controversial in the Catholic uh, teachings. Mm -hmm. And so we would have these apologetics nights, which we continue to this day, in which there would just be a very, very concrete one hour and we would start off by going through as many of the objections to the Catholic teaching as we could think of, mm. um, which is not an original idea. I mean, in fact, this is how uh, in, in the Middle Ages and, and even later there, there was this uh, kind of style of disputations where you would start off with a proposition and you start with all the things against it you could think of and then describe the, the church's teaching and then respond to those objections. And so that essentially is the format that, that we, we started with and, and they just built over time. And so it was, frankly, it was during COVID. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so many people had said that, you know, it would be helpful for not just seminarians, but for Catholics in general, mm-hmm. to have this approach where you really study those who disagree with us and, and to know that they're not necessarily evil or stupid people who disagree <laughs> with us and, and getting to know that, but also having the tools in a concise format to be able to respond to those objections. So that was so during COVID, I basically put all these together, and that was uh, that's the book cross-examined. Ah, okay. Well, that makes sense. Uh, the the ordering of the of the topics demonstrates itself in a kind of question and answer format. So, so I I see now the, the the genesis of this book, so to speak. And you don't pull punches in this book. That's a beautiful thing. Uh, you you tackle some of these hard questions, and like you said, uh, some of our, propo- our our opponents are intelligent individuals, and they need intelligent responses. So yeah. we we talked with uh, Dr. Kevin Vost earlier about. Uh, the existence of God. I'd like to ask you then, was the resurrection a literal historical event? You jump right into this in chapter two. Mm-hmm. Yes, no, exactly. And we start, so chapter one starts with precisely the existence of God. How can mm-hmm. we know that God exists? And then chapter two, yeah, resurrection. Was it a literal historical event? And of course, we believe that it was. And there's a lot of evidence for that, but there's also a lot of objections that we have to address to begin with. Um, and, you know, some of the obvious ones, the Gospels, you know, are unreliable as historical texts, or, you know, that the resurrection was never meant to be taken literally, it was just the symbol, you know, or even that, that it's a, it's a grand hoax and a grand deception, you know, these are some of the claims that are made against, against that teaching. Mm-hmm. And then so kind of going through what are, what, what do we believe, and, and why do we believe it about the historical accuracy of the text, and so forth, and then trying to respond to some of those. And, you know, for example, the one that this is a, a, a hoax, uh, seems to be just, uh, I mean, it, it's its unbelievable that so many would die for essentially, uh, you know, a, fa- a fake claim. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. And so kind of the, it's just so implausible uh, now, and, and, and this idea of like mass 
hysteria or hallucination or something like that. I mean, right, right. there may be moments of that where you can see groups, but not for over decades, a period of time where they go off to their death in order to defend that hoax. And right. So it's, it's really something that does confront uh, a non-believer understand those things. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't know if you've ever encountered uh, Lee Strobel's book, uh, The Case for Christ, mm. but uh, it, yeah. it really was a, a uh, encountering Strobel's investigation, but I, I, I was an atheist before and having done my own investigation, I came to the realization that there's a, there's a historicity to the claims of the resurrection. This wasn't just something that was a religious truth that was founded upon nothing. And and you do good work in demonstrating some of the histor- historicity of this. And j- just to reiterate the solidity of this claim, Father, th- there are a lot of Christians out there who wonder if the resurrection actually even happened. So uh, just, just walk us through some of the solid evidences for the reasons of the resurrection. Well, I mean, the most important is the reliability of the scriptures, which is, um, and this is something that Strobel goes into and others do as well, Um, but there are multiple historical documents, uh, and these are historical documents that really were not discounted at the time. They tried to find other ways of explaining for the the, the empty tomb, for example. Um, But, you know, the Gospels, as I mean, they're, they're... they're actually more reliable than almost any other texts we have of that time period, mm-hmm. you know, and those texts are taken uh, at face value because of their, you know, their competing claims. And yet at the same time, they, they, they show that they're, you know, in other texts say about the existence of Socrates. We have more evidence for the existence of Jesus than we do of Socrates. Yep. And nobody questions yep. whether Socrates existed, you know, and so. And not just Socrates, well, uh, Aristotle, Charlemagne. Uh, Julius Caesar, we have we have disproportionately more evidence for the person of Jesus Christ than all of those men combined. Right. And, you know, one thing that some things will be said, you know, sometimes will be said is that there are minor inconsistencies among the different uh, evangelists. And and that may be true. I think there are ways actually of understanding those not as con- inconsistencies. But to, to make the sort of for the sake of, of argument, even if they were inconsistencies, actually, I think in some ways, because they're so minor compared to the claim that they all make that Jesus rose from the dead, literally and personally, um, they actually increase the, 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 uh, the, the veracity of it. Because if you you know, if, if you're putting together a hoax, then you certainly wouldn't put four documents together right. that had minor inconsistencies. You right. would smooth all those out. But That's the right. early church left those exactly as they were written. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, it's funny. We, we know this from a very logical perspective. When police officers are taking accounts of eye, eyewitness accounts of an incident that happened, they know that if the accounts completely match up, something is fishy. So so we know this on a very logical level. And and, and yet we, we, we apply a... a inordinate and inordinate amount of skepticism when it comes to approaching the inconsistencies or seeming inconsistencies within, between the gospel texts. Yeah. Yeah. And on also we have kind of a, a sort of implicit evidence or indirect evidence, the fact that it was never actually really refuted at, its, at, at the time by hostile um, local and imperial uh, authorities. And they could have debunked it in, in, in so many ways if it had been a grand hoax. Um, but they chose not to do so because, namely, there wasn't any any contrary evidence in that sense. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and so this idea that there is a, a conspiracy, you know, this is just a quick line from it, again, that, you know, that it's in a conspiracy so airtight that we have not a shred of evidence for it without a single conspirator betraying the others or the ruse itself. And virtually every one of them was tortured and killed for refusing to break the confidence. Right. That is what we're supposed to believe as a hoax rather than the more plausible account and the simple explanation that the resurrection actually happened. You know, uh, uh, 
you can probably tell from my accent, I didn't grow up in America, and yet Waterloo is just one of those things in world history that, that you learn, e- even if you don't grow up in America. And I remember mm-hmm. the whole Waterloo incident, and I think it involved like 12, um, 12 mm-hmm. major uh, major figures in the American government, and including the president at that time, Nixon. And they couldn't even keep their story straight for, what was it, like three or four months of the inquiry? And, and, and these were very powerful men, very influential men. And, and here we're looking at uh, fishermen and, and, and people who were against the leading powers at that time, and they willingly died for their faith. If <laughs> There's this claim out there that Waterloo, the fact that Waterloo happened the way it did proves to me that Christianity is real because the apostles held their claim together even, to, even unto death. Yeah, and you've held on to some of your background because we, we call it Watergate. <laughs> oh, <laughs> gosh, exactly I'm right. so <laughs> sorry. I meant Watergate. Oh, no, gosh, I can't believe I did that. <laughs> I apologize. Yeah, yeah, but Watergate. It's, but, but it's absolutely true. You know, I mean, here we are. We have professional conspirators, and they, within the space of a few years, couldn't keep the lid on it. You know, right. and yet, just as you point out, I mean, that, that, that shows, if anything, that these simple fishermen, you know, that they're somehow supposed to keep. And, you know, at one point, and we hear that 500 people saw Jesus. Now, if, mm-hmm. why would they write that if the local authorities could simply interview one of the other 499 and say, you know, you didn't see anything, did you? Of course we didn't. <laughs> well, there's no evidence of that happening at all. Yep, it you went know? uncontested. So, right, right. Yeah, so uh, we're coming down to the end of this segment, Father, and I want to put a pause on the conversation because this is a truly intriguing conversation, just the claims of the resurrection alone, but I also want to tackle how you talk about the reality of hell with regard to a loving God. So we're talking to Father Carter Griffin, priest of the Archdiocese of Washington. Uh, He is also uh, assigned now to the newly established St. John Paul II Seminary in Washington, D.C. Stay tuned as we continue to talk about responses for the Catholic faith. I'm Marcus Peter filling in for Al Cresta on Cresta in the Afternoon. Good afternoon. Welcome back to Crescent in the Afternoon. Marcus Peter filling in for Al Cresta on this lovely Thursday afternoon feast of St. Edmund Campion. We're talking to Father Carter Griffin, priest of the Archdiocese of Washington. Father Carter is now the rector of the St. Paul, St. John Paul II Seminary in Washington, D.C., where brilliant work is being done to form holy, manly, masculine fathers of the next generation, priests who will be after the heart of Jesus Christ. And he is one of the reasons why. So, and, and he's penned this wonderful book, Cross-Examined, which presents truths of the Catholic faith uh, in terms of Catholic responses to the world's questions. So, Father Carter, we were talking about evidences for the resurrection. And I thank you for correcting the faux pas. I would hate to have people looking up Waterloo and finding out if Nixon was involved in Waterloo. No, it was, it was Watergate. He was responsible for a lot of things, but not that one. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm very grateful for that. You know, what's funny is um, my my, my son is now 17 months old and and we need a baby gate Mm. for every facet of the home. And uh, I've come to a point where whenever I hear the word baby gate, I imagine uh, 12 little toddlers sitting around a room discussing how to cover up the scandal of stealing cookies. Right. In the great American tradition. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so going back to this conversation, then uh, you, you talked about uh, the unchallenged claims of Jesus's resurrection, the fact of the en- empty tomb, which was a scandalous thing if if the resurrection were in fact untrue. But there are also other things. Um, the the fact is Jesus actually died, and that's a factual reality. And there's a certain literal attestation of this in the gospel. So walk us through that. 
Absolutely, yeah. The, 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 um, there, there was never there was never an attempt to shy away from the fact that Jesus suffered and uh, died and was buried. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there might have been a temptation to do that to suggest that he was some kind of superhuman figure that you know didn't actually experience that. And, and in fact, some other faith traditions have even said that that he didn't die at all. Right. But right. no, the Catholic understanding is then that he did die, um, and all the evangelists agree on that. Mm-hmm. All of the, the local authorities, the imperial authorities, everyone agreed on that. And yet there was this empty tomb that they had to account for. If they had stolen the body, then presumably the body could have been recovered, or you know, one of the one of the one of the conspirators would have would have divulged that eventually, certainly before being tortured and murdered. And yet all of them were. Um, and yet all of them continued to claim the same thing that yes he died and then he rose again and ascended into heaven. And so that consistency of the historical record is something that must be addressed. Now having said that that can't alone, I mean, there is still an element of faith, obviously. We mm-hmm. still have to trust the testimony being given to us. Mm-hmm. But we do that all the time in natural ways. You know, we, we trust the testimony of those that are believable. And right. in this case, I think it, they are eminently believable. Right, right, absolutely. Uh, I, I trust that I am going to be able to drive home because I trust that the laws of physics and, uh, and you know, laws of chemistry and biology, everything will work out to my advantage so that mm. I can perform this very seemingly mundane task. We, uh, I, I trust in the reality of atomic forces, even though I can't actually see atoms without an electron microscope. So we do this on a, on a very sim- simplistic level every day, and yet we approach everything pertaining to the faith with an overt sense of skepticism. Deviate from your book then, but but also in the spirit of this apologetics course that you've been doing at the seminary, why is that? Why is our culture so overtly skeptic, uh, skeptical today? This has never been a mark of human history before. Well, in some ways, there's something very good about it, right? I mean, the, the skepticism that has led to uh, very profound um, uh, understanding of, of the created nature and, and you know, the, the scientific method is something that essentially was invented by the Catholic Church, uh, by Catholics, and it was because of this understanding that there was a measured, ordered creation by an ordered God who, who in his love, has created an ordered world. And so the skepticism that, is, that has been very successful uh, in, in probing more deeply into the mysteries of nature, has, and, and, and even also the skepticism of, of making sure that we understand something to be true and not just being credulous or gullible. You know, I think these are all very positive characteristics. Mm-hmm. And the purpose of apologetics is not to do away with skepticism, but it, it, a healthy skepticism, but actually to address it. Um, and I think that's an important point, you know, that apologetics is not the same thing as evangelization. Mm-hmm. Apologetics has certain purposes, you know, to help people hear the truth, um, uh, to overcome prejudices about the faith, you know, to correct misunderstandings, um, to increase the Catholic's own confidence in his faith. Mm-hmm. I mean, there is a place for apologetics, which is very important, and, and feeding the mind of those who have legitimate questions and a healthy skepticism. But if the skepticism then devolves into something where they simply refuse to believe because they don't want to believe, well, that becomes an irrational skepticism. Right. I think that's what we're dealing with more today. Right. Not, and, not more, but we are dealing with that sometimes. And, and that's what I meant by overt skepticism. Uh, Augustine yeah. faced small groups of the, uh, this during his time. He called them the masters of suspicion. Uh, mm. John Paul II repeats that particular title taken from the confessions in his, John, in his uh, theology of the body. And I'm seeing it at the high school level. I, I have students who their go-to approach is to doubt everything. Which is a very, uh, you know, a very Kantian premise to begin with. So it's not like they they're creating this thought in a vacuum, this thought in a in a bubble of sorts, right? Uh, but the fact is, why why is this so appealing to the culture at large right now? Overt, 
extreme skepticism. You know, I, I mean, I think when it comes to matters of faith, and that's kind of our conversation, I think the skepticism often is born of, as I was just alluding to a moment ago, a desire that God not exists. I was reading actually a book by an atheist recently, and he was saying that, you know, it's not just that he doesn't believe God exists, he doesn't believe that, but he also doesn't want God to exist. Mm. And, and in fact, he talks about the fact that his atheism, which is a far more credulous, you know, you have to, you have to, oh, you have <laughs> to bend over backwards to be an atheist, say, you know, as you know yourself in your own background. Mm -hmm. But he was saying that, you know, he was he was rattled by the fact that so many of the most intelligent people he knows are believers, you know, and he was and he was sort of musing in this book about the fact that, granted, he doesn't believe God exists, but he's also terrified of the universe in which there is a God, mm -hmm. mainly because he understands God to be this kind of. I don't know, sort of authoritarian policeman figure, judge, you know, and, and he doesn't want that to be real. Mm. He wants him, he wants to be his own Lord and arbiter. Mm -hmm. And so this reluctance to be humble, you know, and we live in a very, very proud age and mm -hmm. a very individualistic age. And faith means that we have to kind of give something over to our creator mm -hmm. and we have to be humble enough to be a, to be a creature and to acknowledge our creatureliness. And so I think the resistance to that has made it harder for some to receive the beauty of faith. And that's, and that's a great loss for them, obviously, you know, in terms of salvation, but also just in terms of, just in terms of their own joy and their own life. I mean, there's, there's, no, there's no one who's happier than somebody who is a beloved son or daughter of God and knows that he or she is that yep. uh, and, can, and can enjoy that, that existence as a, as a believer. And, and I think that's missing in a lot of the sadness and the depression uh, that we see around us and the anxieties and the loneliness that we see around us today. And that's that's entirely true. We're talking to Father Carter, Carter Griffin, rector of St. John Paul II Seminary in Washington, D.C., and priest of the Archdiocese of Washington. He's the author of Cross-Examined, Catholic Responses to the World's Questions. You know, uh, just building off of that conversation, th this culture of relativism has lent to an over-aggrandizing and even uh, divinization, if you will, of the individual individual's opinion, this over-aggrandizing of opinion. And uh, once that becomes the case, then man definitely doesn't want to to come to a come to terms of an ascent of the intellect and will to revelation uh, to the revelation of a God who has created them. Just like you said, I'd rather a God not exist so I can think the way I think and therefore validate how I live. Yes, I think that's right, you know, and, and I think that we have a strange, uh, there is a strange relationship to reason. And, you know, we see this, for example, in the, in the line, follow the science. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's absolutely true. We should mm -hmm. follow the science. The problem is that when we define, based upon our own prejudices and our own desires, what we want science to address and what we don't want mm -hmm. it to address, and we sort of rule out the possibility of growing uh, and learning in ways that aren't sort of very, in a very limited way, sort of an empirical way alone, sort of seeing the world through the five senses, and that's all, mm -hmm. without going beyond that. And of course, no one actually lives that way, mm -hmm. because we all have knowledge that comes from, I mean, the knowledge of love. You know, right, I mean, right. how many atheists are in love with somebody? And they can't explain that to the five. So, exactly. you know, understanding that there are areas of knowledge that, the, that sort of strictly speaking, natural science cannot, cannot define or, or, or penetrate, and, and being open to that, being open to other ways of knowing, other ways of, of seeing. And that, and faith is one of those ways, one of the most important. And so being, I, I think the, the humility of that is something that, you know, we have to encourage our, our, our brothers and sisters to, to experience, but we can only do that if we're living a credible life ourselves. Yeah. I mean, I think it has to come through the joy of the Christian living his Christian life 
that's what's going to enable someone else's heart and mind to be open to the to the gift of faith. No, it, that, that's truly outstanding. I was just uh, teaching this today and pondering on this reality as part of my conversion experience. I, I was a very, after my atheism, I became a very anti-Catholic uh, a Protestant mm. uh, a, a preacher, Protestant preacher with the, with the Assemblies of God. And I was attacking the Catholic Church and then I encountered this Catholic who introduced me to Catholic apologetics. And I met, I, I discovered the works of uh, John Martinoni. And I remember in one of his talks, he said, uh, when these truths challenge you, they are ch- and they challenge the way you believe. Pray f- uh, the way you live. Pray for a spirit of submission to the fullness of truth. And I remember mm-hmm. saying that prayer. And I, I believe that, amongst other things, it was the grace of God in uh, in my intellect and will that gave me the grace of assent to the realities of truth that were being revealed to me. Which is exactly what you're doing here in this book. You're presenting the truth that intellects may assent to this truth, and that's what faith is. Yeah, exactly. And so I think, you know, the, the purpose of apologetics is hopefully to clear away the obstacles so that the grace of God can enter in. It doesn't replace the grace of God. It doesn't mm-hmm. replace, as I said earlier, evangelization or preaching, but it clears away obstacles and prejudices. One of the things, I'm a convert myself. I was not an atheist, but I was a Protestant. And one of the things that I found so refreshing about the Catholic faith is this deep sense that she is not afraid of anything true, right? Yeah. That, 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 that nothing is nothing shouldn't be asked. There's no awkward question. There's right. no uncomfortable silence. Um, nothing in our faith is irrational. Clearly, there are things that are above reason, but nothing does violence to our reason. Mm-hmm. And I found that claim and what I saw in the experience of the reality of the thing uh, to be to be what would enable me to receive that grace of faith and conversion myself. And so I, I agree with you. I think that that's kind of one of the purposes of apologetics, and it's and its most noble purpose, I think. Mm, amen. And you've done so brilliantly in this book, Cross-Examined. So uh, uh, I'd, I'd like to pivot back to the book then. Uh, in your conversation on hell, you, you preface it by saying, can we really believe in eternal, eternal punishment for sinners? And you present a series of objections. In the face of, and, and you know, we, we really have less than two minutes, in, in the face of a loving God, how can hell be a reality? Well, I mean, there's, there's a lot to that, but, it, but in just a very brief, so what I would say is that hell is the measure of the greatness of man's freedom, right? mm. that we have been given this gift to love and truly love. And, and part of that in a fallen world means that there is also the possibility of rejection, right? right? Rejecting God, rejecting the source of life, rejecting the author of, of, our, of our being. And so hell is simply a recognition that God has given us the great dignity of being able to say yes to him, to, to be close to him, to be a son or his daughter, and to love him and to be with him forever. But there is also in that, there is the kind of the great risk, you know, God's great gamble, um, as, 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 one, as, mm-hmm, as someone mm-hmm. said, you know, that, that we can also turn away. Mm-hmm. And so it's really an acknowledgement of the greatness of men and women. Um, that hell is something that they can choose, and they choose it. You know that God doesn't choose it; He desires the salvation of all men. You know, from Saint Tim, right? From the letter to Saint Timothy. So, n- knowing that, there is a great confidence that God is on our side, and He's cheering us on every step of the way. Will give us every means we allow Him into our hearts and into our minds. But if we consistently refuse that and do so in full knowledge and will, then the result of that is an eternal separation from Him, and that's called hell. Father, that, that has got to be the best under-two-minute under presentation of the doctrine of hell I've ever heard, and I'm not even joking. I've been doing this for 14 years now, uh, proclaiming the gospel. So I want to thank you for joining us. We've been talking to Father Carter Griffin, priest of the Archdiocese of Washington, rector of St. John Paul II Seminary in Washington, D.C., 
and he's the author of Cross-Examine, Catholic Responses to the World's Questions. Stay tuned as we round off the hour. Marcus Peter filling in for Al Cresta on Cresta in the Afternoon.